0: This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. Our shocked world watched Haiti collapse as a result of the tragic earthquake in January 2010. Now that our attention has turned to other pressing issues, how have the Haitians moved on? On September 25, 2010, two UVA faculty members with ties to Haiti updated alumni and other audience members. They're introduced by Cindy Frederick, UVA's Associate Vice President for Engagement.
1: Good morning, it's glad, I'm glad to be here, and it's my honor to introduce our very two fine, distinguished speakers today. Robert Fatan is the Julia A. Cooper Professor of Government and Foreign Affairs in the Department of Politics, and has been teaching at UVA since 1981. He is the author of several books and a large number of scholarly articles, and just completed a book entitled The Roots of Haitian Depotism, which will be published this summer. Born and raised in Haiti, now an American citizen, he holds a bachelor's degree from Goshen College and master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Notre Dame. Rebecca Dillingham is an assistant professor in the School of Medicine and associate director for the Center for Global Health. She's been a member of our faculty since 2006. Dr. Dillingham's clinical activity is in the care of adult patients infected with HIV and her research takes place in Haiti, rural Virginia, and South Africa. She has also led the development of the global health curriculum across grounds, and she holds degrees from Harvard Radcliffe College and the University of Missouri at Columbia. She served as a resident in internal medicine and as a fellow in infectious diseases in the UVA health systems, where she also completed her master's in public health here at UVA. So please now join me in welcoming our two very fine distinguished scholars.
2: Good morning. I hope I'm not going to be too depressing before a football game, uh, because the topic that uh, we are going to talk about uh, is really one that uh, can lead to a very bleak uh, discussion. Uh, What I'll be doing is to give you a very brief uh, historical survey of the country and uh, go straight to the current conditions, that is to say, the situation that uh, has materialized in the aftermath of the earthquake of January 12. Uh, as you can see, this is Haiti, and uh, Haiti was, and you probably know that, uh, the first uh, independent black nation, and it is the only A country where slaves not only revolted, but actually uh, managed to create a a state and an independent state, and that happened over 200 years ago. Uh, The uh, anecdotal connection to the United States is that Louisiana would probably have remained in French hands had it not been for the Haitian Revolution because Napoleon sent his troops to Haiti uh, and he thought that he would just immediately dispose of the revolting slaves and then something like 50,000 French troops would have gone to Louisiana. Well, the problem is that obviously the 50,000 troops were either killed in the uh, revolution uh, or uh, had uh, disappeared as a consequence of yellow fever. So Louisiana became uh, uh, part of the United States to a large extent because of the decline of French power. Uh, So since our independence, uh, Haiti has really had uh, a pattern of authoritarian politics. In other words, a succession of either uh, military strongmen or civilian uh, presidents. Uh, who in many instances uh, saw themselves as messianic uh, leaders who eventually uh, became presidents for life. Uh, and that tradition of authoritarianism uh, culminated in uh, the 1950s with uh, the uh, emergence of the Duvalier uh, regime. And uh, first you had Papa Doc. Uh, who ran the country uh, with a very brutal force of the so-called Marcout, uh for something like uh, 14 years, 57 to 71. In 71, his son, uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, who at that time was barely uh, 19, became uh, another president for life. Uh, the expectations were that he would have been removed very quickly, but he managed to stay in power up till 1986. And in 86, there was uh, uh, a rebellion against the dictatorship, and that led uh, to the current phase, which really is a phase of uh, unending uh, democratization, and a phase where that democratization remains extremely fragile, uh, and our institutions are extremely weak. Um, so... When you look at the situation just before the earthquake, you had, as you know, a very poor country, but a country that lacked basic functioning institutions. Uh, And those institutions, whether you're talking about the judiciary, you're talking about the police, you're talking about uh, the different ministries that are running the country, uh, all of those institutions were virtually non-existent as functioning institutions. And uh, when the earthquake came, uh, you had a situation that was already bad, getting really, uh, uh, to put it bluntly, catastrophic. Uh, the earthquake had a devastating uh, impact, not only in terms of the death toll, uh, something like 300,000 people died in the earthquake, and, the numbers might, in fact, uh, underestimate that toll. Uh, but whatever existed in terms of educational institution, whatever existed in terms of uh, health care, all of those things really took a massive blow. And uh, the consequence of the earthquake is, to a large extent, what a Haitian said in Creole, uh, which means the whole country uh, is no more. Uh, and the issue here is really that, uh, not only you had that massive toll, but you also now have a very significant uh, uh, number of people living in camps, uh, something like over 1.4 million people, living in camps that are slowly disintegrating, unfortunately, because You've had the rainy season, so in Port-au-Prince, you have the camps virtually uh, in every area uh, of the capital city. And uh, while there hasn't been uh, starvation, while there hasn't been any epidemics, it's a very bleak uh, situation. and It's difficult to see how the country is going to manage, uh, given the existing uh, infrastructure, to move the people from the camp into uh, permanent housing. Uh, this is going to be a very long transition if it occurs at all. Uh, the devastation of the earthquake uh, was estimated to be the equivalent of 120% of the gross national product. Uh, so you can you, you see the scale uh, of the economic uh, uh, destruction. Uh, and uh, so we are entering into a very dangerous phase not only for The health of the Haitian population but also in terms of the stability of the country. Uh, The uh, catastrophe, on the other hand, has prompted the creation of what has been called the Interim Interim Haiti Recovery Commission. Uh, It was uh, uh, put into law in uh, last April by the Haitian Parliament. Uh, That commission is divided between Haitian uh, politicians and Haitian uh, businessmen and a foreign uh, contingent of institutions and of countries. And it's equally divided. Uh, the two co-directors of the commission are uh, the current Haitian prime minister, a fellow by the, call, by the name of Belle and the other co-director. Uh, is, in fact, the former President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Now, the Commission uh, is supposed to engineer the reconstruction of the country. And uh, while it is, in fact, a welcome sign in terms of the international uh, community commitment uh, to do something about the recovery of Haiti, it is, on the other hand, uh, problematic. Uh, Because what has happened is that the Commission has essentially replaced the government of Haiti. And the Commission has been voted by Parliament, and Parliament has dissolved itself. The Commission has 18 months of essentially absolute power in terms of devising uh, a plan for Haiti. And the problem, as far as I see it, is that the plan that has been devised is a plan that has many weaknesses. It is essentially the old type of economic policies that characterize the country for the past 40 years. Uh, The main emphasis, in spite of a rhetorical commitment to agriculture, to decentralization of the country, is really the garment industry. Uh, It's not that this should not be part of an economic economic plan, but the problem is that the garment industry uh, does not ultimately create a a great, great number of jobs. At its peak, when the garment industry was functioning and that was in the late 70s, early 80s, there were barely 200,000 jobs created by the garment industry. And the problem with that is that it generates massive migration from the rural areas into port prince And the consequence of that is what we've seen, actually, in the earthquake. That is to say, uh, an overpopulated uh, uh, capital city, uh, the uh, crystallization of huge slums, and... Uh, uh, that, in turn, has met that power prince which had been built for about 250,000 people, was actually, at the time of the earthquake, populated by over 2 or 3 million people. So you have a disconnect between the needs of the population and the realities of the economy. And as far as I'm concerned, when you look at those plans, they reflect uh, an, an urban bias, an, an, a bias of, of the elite. Uh, Very little is going to be done for the vast majority of Haitians, in particular in agriculture. Uh, So I think that the plan has a real issue in terms of its emphasis and in terms of concentrating resources in the wrong sector. Uh, As I see it, the way out, if you are thinking about the vast majority of Haitians, is to generate an agricultural uh, system where the country can be in fact uh, self-sufficient in terms of food production. Uh, And that requires significant investment in the rural areas. Uh, And here you have a problem, not only a Haitian problem, but also a problem of the foreign uh, uh, community. Uh, For instance, if you look at uh, the the issue of rice in Haiti, which is the main staple for most Haitians. uh, Haiti was more or less self-sufficient up till 1990. Uh, uh, By 1990 what happened is that you had a series of structural adjustment packages that were uh, implemented in Haiti uh, and that simply meant that subsidies for rice were cut and that uh, uh, the market was to a large degree flooded by uh, American rice, which was actually cheaper. Uh, And the paradox of that is that the domestic agricultural sector in Haiti was told that you couldn't have subsidies. On the other hand, you were going to import American rice from Arkansas that was heavily subsidized by your own taxes. So the game is really a very unfair game and it has contributed to the disintegration of rice production in Haiti. And this is a serious problem. Uh, The paradox is that Bill Clinton, who was president when the policy went in force, testified about uh, a month ago or two months ago in front of, of the Senate, and he said, oh my goodness, I didn't know what I was doing. This has been a catastrophe for Haiti. Uh, and yet, it doesn't look like the policy is going to change. Uh, and, and that's one of the uh, major paradoxes, that Bill may in fact feel the pain, but he doesn't change the policy. Uh, so that, and that is also symptomatic of the international community's uh, plan for Haiti, because what has happened is that the state The government has become a shell, and it's not only because of the incompetence of Haitian bureaucrats and Haitian politicians, but it's also the result of particular policies. The policies have emphasized, actually, uh, the development of NGOs, and uh, the country actually is called by Haitians La République des ONG, which is, to translate it, uh, the NGO republic. Now, NGOs are perfectly fine as a palliative in terms of crisis, but when they become more powerful than the government and they are not coordinated, it really generates a significant problem. So what you have is really essentially an invisible state Uh, and that was uh, very much uh, expressed during the earthquake. Most Haitians didn't see the president, didn't see the government uh, helping in any fashion. And it was not just that the government uh, was incompetent, but it was also that the government didn't have the means to do very much. Uh, if you look, for instance, at the contribution of the United States in the immediate period uh, after the earthquake, something like five to $600 million were disbursed. And there has been a study of where the money went. And most of the money actually didn't stay in Haiti. It went to pay for the US military for transportation and for American food to give to Haiti. Out of every dollar that was sent to to the country, only one cent went to uh, the the government. Uh, So you have, in other words, uh, uh, a structural problem that you have a government that has not the capacity to run the country. Uh, The budget of Haiti is to a large extent a foreign budget. Uh, 70% of the budget comes from uh, foreign assistance. Uh, There is no army in Haiti. You have a United Nations uh, contingent, so-called MINUSTA, uh, that is, in fact, in charge of very much uh, preserving uh, the peace. So the country has become, uh, and it's a very hard thing for Haitians to accept, but has really become uh, a, a trusteeship of the international community. And the question is how? does the country extricate itself from uh, that uh, situation? Uh, and uh, when you look at the magnitude of the crisis, one is essentially rather uh, pessimistic about, uh, about the capacity of the government uh, to move forward. And I ask to put that picture, because what you see that is the national palace, uh, the center, as it were, of Haitian... Uh, power uh, and the state, the symbolic of the state. And that is symbolic of the existing state. In other words, it's decaying and it is, in fact, disintegrating. So the question is, how do you reconstruct a state? And that is going to be extremely difficult. It is not an easy uh, process uh, and it is in the current, uh, this, in these conditions, that you're going to have an election in uh, uh, November, in uh, November 88. Uh, And the elections are going to be uh, very interesting because it's difficult to see how you can have uh, really free and fair elections when, uh, in the first place, uh, most of the data has disappeared uh, during the earthquake. I mean, the the list of voters, uh, people have lost their identity cards. So there is one whether you can have, in fact, an election uh, that is actually legitimate. The second uh, problem, is that uh, the current Electoral Council uh, is very much in the pocket of the current president, uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Winnie Prival, so it's very likely uh, that the elections will go one way, that is to say, will lead to the election of uh, his uh, Dauphin, his chosen candidate, a fellow by the name of Jude Celestin. Uh, and uh, here you've had also a disconnect between the international community and and part of the Asian population, insofar as uh, many people in Haiti think that those elections should not, in fact, take place. The country is not ready for them uh, in terms of the logistic of organizing those elections, but also in terms of the capacity of the government to uh, manipulate the results. Uh, And yet, the international community wants uh, those elections, and I think the international community, to a large extent, wants continuity, that is to say, the same kind of uh, uh, government that exists now, because it has been uh, very favorable to uh, the international uh, community. Uh, So we will see. Uh, Finally, uh, one of the main obstacles to the development of a coherent and uh, responsible state is the high degree of inequalities that exist in Haiti. You have a very socially polarized situation where probably 5% of the population controls, uh, in all likelihood, something like 80 to 90% of the wealth of the country. And that uh, entails, therefore, that kind of political uh, tension. And uh, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, there was uh, some sort of hope that maybe the divide between the very wealthy and the very poor might somehow be bridged, because the earthquake was uh, a, 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 an equalizer. I mean, wealthy, poor, whoever you were, you were in the same rubbish, literally, in the earthquake. And for a few days, it looked like there was going to be a sense that maybe things have to change. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that uh, the old reflexes and the old divisions have uh, re-emerged uh, fairly quickly and it's difficult to see how that divide is going to be uh, bridged. So the future seems to be rather bleak. Uh, on the other hand, there are uh, a few uh, signs of hope uh, in uh, so far as uh, the new generation of Haitians seem to want to change things. Haiti is a very uh, young country, uh, you know, about nine million people in the country now and uh, only 4% of the population is over 65 years. Uh, 43% is under 15 years. So you're talking about a massive explosion, and the youth is really uh, the hope for uh, the future. And actually, uh, I don't want to put her on the spot, but we have uh, one student, she's from Haiti, and she's a student at UVA, and she's an amazing job Uh, to uh, bring some form of change. And she's sitting right there. (laughs) So she has uh, uh, in the aftermath of the quake. She has uh, created an organization called uh, Building Haiti. And she is in the process of uh, uh, leading to uh, the building of uh, a school. She has managed to get the money. She has managed to get the, the material, the land. The books, uh, she's managed to get the teachers, uh, and she's done that uh, essentially as a one woman show. See, uh, so. So, if there is hope, it really resides uh, in uh, the, the youth, and uh, uh, my generation has essentially failed, uh, and we can, I can only hope uh, that the next generation. Uh, will in fact uh, seize the opportunity uh, that the catastrophe has brought about, Uh, otherwise uh, I'm afraid that the country will remain in a permanent state of crisis. Thank you very much.
3: Good morning. So we're so fortunate this morning to have Professor Faton to to interpret for us the incredibly complex and painful realities of Haiti historically and now after the earthquake and I'm going to provide a very different perspective and um, I would certainly echo um, Professor Faton's hope with students like Anya and other young people in Haiti because I, I actually do have a lot of hope probably accused of being a pathologic optimist um but uh i, I, I want to make an argument that there is hope um based on a again quite a different perspective that looks at a microcosm of haiti um in an organization that i've been fortunate enough to work with um I, this is true i was actually in port-au-prince last week and unfortunately the the camps are um all still there and uh, are becoming more and more entrenched i'll come back to that but this is this is the organization that provides my perspective um, on haiti and it's not my story i have worked um, at this clinic for the past eight years um... and it's a large part of my time here on faculty actually three-quarters of my time um, is devoted to work with this clinic um, and uh... That said, um, again, it's certainly not my story. It's the story of the Haitians um, that I work with there. And I would argue that organizations like this, the, the Jeskio Clinic, which actually means the Haitian group for the study of Kaposi's sarcoma and opportunistic infections. And I'll ask uh, one of my professors in the audience, what do you think that might be a code for, Dr. Koenig? <laughs> you don't have to say. I'll tell you that it was created in 1981 at a time when um, uh, the, the president of Haiti had said that it was illegal to say the word HIV or AIDS. Um, uh, actually, HIV wasn't really even described, but AIDS was. Um, and as some of you may remember, Um, HIV in this country was originally characterized by the four H's, hemophiliacs, uh, heroin users, homosexuals, and what was the fourth, Haitians which was devastating to the country. Um, Talk about many, many structural injustices that have occurred, but that was an inaccurate epidemiologic representation and it destroyed the Haitian tourism industry um, because people thought that AIDS was synonymous with Haiti, which was not fair. Um, And in response, the president said it it was not Legal to say that there was AIDS in Haiti. And yet, Dr. Pop, um, a Haitian uh, physician trained at Cornell and also here at UVA, um, who went back to Haiti when it became safe for him to go back and has remained in Haiti was one of the first, along with some of his colleagues, to describe um, the existence of HIV. And he began, he recognized that people needed care, and he started caring for them right then. But they came up with this funny French acronym and funny French name um, that was disguising the. The, the, the true work that they were doing by referring to a cancer that attacked some people with HIV instead of referring to HIV. So anyway, that's the history of, of the center, um, a brief, brief history. But as I was saying, it's the kind of place that should be identified and supported um, and is a particular relevance, I think, to leading U.S. universities. Why do I say that? Um, first of all, as I've already said a couple of times, it's Haitian-led. Um, And that has allowed it um, to be sustained, both because there are Haitians that are there, that live there, that have their families there, but also because Dr. Poppin and and some like him have integrated into the government. Over the past 30 years, I couldn't tell you, I'm sure Professor Fatone could, how many presidents, how many different administrations one has had to weather um, to be able to sustain an organization that serves as the national laboratory. Um, for uh, tuberculosis, for sexually transmitted diseases, and for many other conditions. That is a major training center um, for physicians, nurses, lab technologists, not only for Haiti, but for much of the Caribbean. Um, And that has produced um, incredible research that is relevant particularly in resource-limited settings where unfortunately as an infectious disease doc, I know that that's where the infectious diseases are really still um, wildly out of control when they shouldn't be. Um, I remember once giving a talk in Uganda and putting up a picture of Dr. Pop, which unfortunately I didn't include today, um, uh, and uh, my, my, the colleagues that I was speaking to in Uganda, there was this kind of gasp, um, because he's so famous. Um, and my Ugandan colleagues hadn't realized he was black, hadn't realized he was Haitian, and that meant so much to them that these incredible findings that have influenced care for millions of people came from uh, Haitian, organization so it's it's really um uh an amazing place um and i hope um that um it will survive i don't hope it will survive it will survive but in addition to being haitian led and and being integrated into the government so that it has been able to live through all of these different administrations um, it also uh, has been key in addressing the aftermath of the earthquake why again It's Haitian-led. They were there. They have intimate knowledge. They were able to respond incredibly quickly. I'm gonna show you pictures of their immediate response in just a moment. They're also incredibly flexible, again, because they had a lot of resources already on the ground. Um, And finally, and I think importantly, particularly as we approach the anniversary of the earthquake, it's hard to believe that it were coming up on a year. They are able to integrate both the disaster response that they were able to provide immediately with building for the future. When I was there last week, I was watching a lot of relief workers packing up and headed to Pakistan. You know, they're on to the movable famine. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're leaving. Um, and organizations like this are staying and are able to integrate continued relief work with future um, plans for building and truly, hopefully, uh, reviving um, the good things uh, about Haiti. So um, this is the main clinic area. Uh, we serve 6,000 patients who are infected with HIV, um, children, adolescents, adults. We also take care of their families. Um, we take care of those who have TB. Um, and again, just to underline, we also do research relevant um, to this kind of setting um, and do a lot of training uh, of physicians, nurses, lab techs, psychologists, um, etc. Um, This is pre-earthquake. I think it's important to underline, as Professor Faton was saying, that before the earthquake, things were terrible. This is an acute on chronic disaster. This is the canal that's right on the other side of the wall um, from our clinic. Port-au-Prince can be lovely. It's, uh, uh, it's, It's mountainous. It comes down to the sea. And the trash system is essentially to push everything into the canals and let it go out. Um, into the sea. Um, right across the street from us is the Cité de Dieu. This is pre-earthquake. Um, this is essentially a huge trash pile um, that has all that trash that's collected. If you look at satellite images, you can see the Boulevard Harry Truman, which is the street that we're on, that was supposed to be a seaside boulevard. And now there's this neighborhood of several tens thousands of thousands people that live across the street essentially on trash. So Haiti had problems. Um, it continues to have problems, but this is the setting. When people say, why haven't they just rebuilt? This is a country that doesn't have any cranes. That doesn't, I don't know how many dump trucks they have. I could probably count them on my two hands. Um, it is not possible to just rebuild um, like this after an event like this. So that this, is, this was before. Happier days with two of my colleagues. Um, This is the wall of Jeskio that fell. Fortunately, um, the main clinic building that I showed you, um, it stood, um, the administration building fell, um, but we were fortunate in the sense that um, structurally we still had most of our resources. The pencil point is at the large triangle, so these are all the different refugee camps. This is a little bit dated, there are more camps now, Um, and the relative size of the triangle shows the size of the camp. Immediately after the quake, people came to Jeskio. It is a part of the community that everybody recognizes as a place where you can get good medical care and a safe place. The the picture of the presidential palace that Professor Faton showed you is about Maybe a quarter of a mile as the crow flies from our clinic, um, and the prison also fell, which is right next to the presidential palace. So the the prison, there was a lot of fear that there were going to the prisoners were going to be dangerous. So people came to shelter at our clinic. Hence, why all of a sudden we had one of the big triangles, even though we actually have a relatively limited scope of care that we provide. But people came to us. Um, the um, Yellow rectangle there as you can see is the refugee camp the clinic that I showed the picture of is in the blue rectangle And then the field hospital that the US military came to set up again because we were there Um, it was, they knew that there was personnel there that could help, um, was set up immediately. That was the, the, on the, on the left, as you look at it, was the original refugee camp. Those are just people came and set up in our soccer field. Um, and that was, um, the, right after the quake, people distributing, um, food and medicine. Um, this is the military uh, at Jeskio. Again, just underlining that supporting, we didn't have to get a whole lot of materiel into, into Haiti to be able to do this. Being supporting this kind of organization allowed for a much more prompt response, and this field hospital um, dealt um, with horrible, atrocious wounds um, and sent them out to the comfort, but was critical in the initial response. Um, this is—I ah, do have a picture of Dr. Pop. This is Dr. Pop. He is a true hero um, in our time, um, and uh, I'm so. Privilege to have worked with him over the years and to continue. Uh, Bill Clinton showed up pretty quickly again, recognizing that this was an important organization to distribute um, uh, to distribute uh, medicine and food. Um, this is what the camp looked like um, within about three weeks. Um, Every family uh, that was there was able to at least get a tent. Um, Unfortunately, a sad reality is the barbed wire. You see the security had been a major issue, and we were able to secure the camp fairly quickly. And this is an example. This family of six lives in the tent. Every day our physicians that had been um, caring for the thousands of patients that they're responsible for take turns doing a sweep through the camp to identify every person with diarrhea, everybody with a fever, um, everybody that needs medical care, all the pregnant women. Um, And we've been very fortunate. We've had no outbreaks of disease um, and uh, haven't had any incidents of malnutrition either. Um, This uh, is to remind me of while we had all that to do, and that's a very royal we, this isn't me, they had a lot to do, Um, the care of our patients had to continue and after the earthquake no one wanted to go into a building. So even though our building had been declared structurally sound, clinic had to move outside um, because people were too afraid. Now, um, as of last week, people are willing to go back inside which is easier um, in the rainy season. uh, here, President Bush here um, in the summer, um, recognizing uh, Jeskio as a site that has uh, really succeeded with the help of PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Again, the usual business of, um, of our clinic is continuing. Unfortunately, we lost um, almost 5% of our patients in the earthquake, um, but we're really only I was just helping them, actually, with the follow-up. We, we, we haven't accounted for 3% of our patients. They've, other than that, they're all back, all getting care. Um, and that's a big job, um, and it continues. Um, In addition to the kinds of care that I described before, um, these are two of my nursing colleagues, um, and they have uh, taken on the role of uh, rehabilitation also, which was not something we'd ever done before. Um, I should say that the Jeskio Clinic's main partner is Cornell University, Vanderbilt, and University of Virginia are also significant partners and we're very fortunate in that regard. Um, A tuberculosis hospital, the tuberculosis hospitals fell Um, And so, uh, we now have this tent hospital. Um, TB is uh, a major problem in Haiti, uh, and unfortunately, uh, multiple drug-resistant TB um, is spreading because of the failure of that particular infrastructure. So this is an attempt to address that. Um, In addition to medical care, it was very... um, it was extraordinary to me that I was watching Dr. Pop get interviewed on national NBC news and one of the, I can't remember who the, the interviewer was, but he was saying to him, you know, you've got a lot of other things to do. How come you're taking care of all these people in the camp? And I thought Dr. Pop's expression was priceless. He's got a very expressive face anyway. And I thought you could see in his face that he, that was the most perplexing thing anybody had ever said to him. He said, But he finally, after a pause, he said, what else would I do? And so in that vein of what else would I do, well, what has he done? He's created a school um, on our clinic grounds um, for the children because their schools were all destroyed. So the children are back in school. It's another shot, um, all with their (laughs) (laughs) this AIDS organization now that has a school. Um, and this, is, this was uh, right after work the last day I was there. Um, there's a soccer team that they've set up. The Jeskio Lions are now playing soccer. Um, and uh, the reason they have their soccer field back is actually um, because um, the camp has moved. I'll, I'll mention that in a moment. This was, um, there was concern that people weren't getting enough food. Um, and so Dr. Pop decided that there should be a central kitchen for the camp and he started, um, he actually hired women, um, to create a central kitchen area from which all the food could be distributed rather than trying to distribute uncooked food which then would become a commodity and was leading to security issues, um, in the camp. So he paid women to cook the food and distribute it, um, and that had, has worked well. Unfortunately, as you see here, it was getting pretty muddy. They were using rubble, um, as pathways. Um, but. But ultimately, they moved to this higher ground, just moved the whole camp. And Dr. Pop has secured the land necessary um, to be able to um, create a whole new community for the people that are currently living in the camp. Um, um, so I get pretty excited about that. I think that it's an incredible success story, and I think that the success stories in Haiti um, need to be trumpeted as well so that we can identify um, where Um, to spend our efforts, um, both uh, monetary and uh, um, in terms of human resources. And human resources is what I wanted to remind all of us uh, of um, in this regard. Um, This is the nursing school. The nursing school collapsed in the earthquake, crushing two classes of nurses, two whole classes. Um, And, you know, that's just... Nurses are the caregivers in Haiti. There aren't, doc- there aren't enough doctors. There'll never be enough doctors in Haiti. Nurses are what matter. Um, and two whole classes of them were, were crushed in the earthquake. And I think that I wanted to remind myself, you know, as a university, as a leading university, I think that we have a real role um, in working with partners like Jeskio to help them rebuild, to help them train the youth, to help them find that future that I really believe Haiti has. Um, And uh, that's a, just a nice shot of Haiti. And this one um, is, uh, is actually, this is not my photo, um, but I do want you to remember it so that you think about how UVA can help Haiti in meaningful ways. Um, Certainly, I am not the only one at UVA that cares deeply about Haiti. There are many, many, this is actually a thanks to a team led by Dr. Scott Severud from the Emergency Department and Audrey Snyder from the School of Nursing that have been going um, back and forth and are helping to develop a clinic in Jacmel, one of the, uh, seaside cities uh, that's really lovely and was also severely damaged. So uh, we wanted to make sure we left time for questions. Um, so I'd be happy to, and I know Professor feton also. Um,
4: I was in Haiti in August, mm-hmm. and we drove, we did an extensive tour of Port-au-Prince. In, I also was at the embassy, and I looked at the map of all the tent cities, and I also I was blown away by the um, smell of excrement, and I saw people knee-high in excrement at the t- in the tent cities, and only one place way far away for excrement removal, and I'm wondering if that is... I mean, obviously, that's going to be a cause of major disease and a lack of, uh, loss of dignity, too, in my opinion. Do you know anything about that and what can be done? Or do either one of you have any uh, more information about it? I didn't know. I was really upset about it. The yeah. smell was overwhelming. Yeah. It was just disgusting. Um,
3: you know, I mean, you're certainly right that... Um, Human waste can certainly contribute to epidemics. Fortunately, so far there haven't been any significant epidemics. But if these kinds of conditions continue, there, there, there well could be. Um, I uh, in in the camp that I was referring to, we have a lot of porta potties, and we actually have a system, We actually have a company that will pick up the waste. Um, these are the kinds of kind of nuts and bolts that you really need to be able to manage something like um, like the, the problem of human waste in an incredibly overpopulated area. So um, I, I agree and really resonate with your point that both, it's a question both of um, of health and also of dignity and i think that that question of returning some sense of normalcy and dignity is extremely important and shouldn't be ignored either in the very obvious area of dealing with human excrement but also in giving people the privacy and the and the and the dignity of of a of a of more than a torn tarp um pardon they charge people to use the uh, border bodies Mm -hmm. 50 cents i believe She was um, uh, mentioning that some places are charging people to use the porta-potties, which um, also is, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's understandable everybody's lost their jobs. People are trying to make money where they can, but on the other hand, it is um, uh, sort of horrifying to think that in order to be able to, um, to, to go to the bathroom in a safe place.
5: Do you have uh, any recommendations for organizations to contribute to that will not only for health care but for infrastructure? I would think that roads and dispersal of the population
3: from port of pens prince should be a priority to make a, li- a living
0: outside of the city and disperse the population so that the building of roads and building of uh, residences outside the area?
2: Well actually some roads are being built or rebuilt. Uh, but the issue is obviously providing jobs and incentives to people to move from Port-au-Prince and move back to their rural areas. And uh, immediately after the earthquake, there was a huge exodus of people from Port-au-Prince to the rural areas. Uh, the problem is that they've become a burden on those communities and it's no longer very clear how many people are coming back. It's difficult to count. But I think this is one of the key issues in terms of any reconstruction. That is, what is going to be the emphasis of the policies? Are you going to really promote agricultural development? I mean, something like 60% of the Haitian population still lives in the rural areas. So, to me, that is the only way you can resolve some of the major problems. It's not that Haiti is going to become wealthy. I think this is not going to happen in my lifetime, uh, clearly. But it's a question of giving basic necessities to the vast majority of the population. So the emphasis should be, in fact, in the reconstruction of the rural areas, building canals, irrigation, and food production. But that does not square with Uh, the key policies and the emphasis of the key policies, which are really urban policies, garment industry, export of textile, uh, which is going to create some jobs. There's nothing necessarily bad about it given the conditions in Haiti. But when you put most of your emphasis on that, I think it's simply the wrong policy. Is that what you were referring
5: to by government industry, these uh, particular industry, garment industry?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, because they're all going to be situated around the airport in Port-Pers. Uh And, it's got, I mean, we had those policies under Jean-Claude Duvalier. They created something like 200,000 jobs, which is not bad. But when you put all your emphasis there, you really create poles of attraction that are in the urban area, so people in the rural areas come back. Uh, and if you don't provide the, the incentive for food production, which would require, actually, tariffs and subsidies, at least initially, uh, you're not going to be able to end the dependence on food donation, and the food production is going to continue to decline. So this is a key issue, but this is also a political problem, because the people who have those plans are really urban people, and that we've been talking about investing in agriculture for the past 40 years. Very little has been done. They can give you a, a number which is striking. Uh, in, in 2007, uh, the, the international community gave, gave something like 69 million dollars in terms of food donation. The budget of the Ministry of Agriculture was 1.2 million dollars. So how can you square you know, the need with the policies? They don't. So, so you really need to change the policies. Uh, and. Uh, Many of the plans, when you read them, there is a very beautiful pictures of you know, how to decentralize, but it's not materializing because the emphasis is not there. Uh, and the one question that has not been asked either uh, is whether power plants should be rebuilt where it, where it was. Uh, there has been no national debate. Actually, there has been no national debate at all on any of the policies. Uh, so you, you, you have a real disconnect between the policies, the government And the rest of the population.
3: You asked about organizations. I I would um, give a shout out to Zamila Sante, our partners in health here in the United States, as they are working, um, they work closely with the government, Um, they have partnered with the government, but they are rebuilding the medical education and nursing education complex with the partnership of the Ministry of Health in Mirabalé, which is actually a rural part of the country and they, they are, uh, are really focused on trying to promote that decentralization and rebuild the infrastructure necessary for providing healthcare. They also, um, in reference to what Professor Faton is talking about, have Zami Agricole and have worked extensively to revitalize the Haitian agricultural um, setting. Um, in the central plateau. Professor
5: uh, Fenton, could you explain to me why it's favorable, the policies that exist right now, what you consider to be kind of destructive policies are favorable to the international community?
2: Well, you know, uh, uh, my view of the global economy is really one where uh, some people, to put it crudely, are being screwed and others are not. Uh, And I think that's exactly what's happening to Haiti uh, at the international level, but also locally. It's not there are people in Haiti who benefit from the crisis. Uh, You know, crises are nasty, but some interests benefit. And the dominant interests want the government industry. So this is where you're going to get the emphasis. Uh, So I think it's a political issue. Who has power and what are the interests behind that power? And we've had for at least... 100 years, clearly uh, a, a fundamental disconnect between the privileged few and the vast majority. That has you're been...
5: Cons- about Haitians, though, right? The elite Haitians have a political interest in keeping things as they are. That I understand. Yeah. But the international community, that's the part I don't understand. The people who are choosing to contribute hundreds of millions of dollars to a country, why would it be in any of our international's best interest to have them continue to be a dependent economy
2: most of the money doesn't stay in haiti that's one of the things you see there's a lot of foreign assistance that is being given but the foreign assistance very little of it stays in haitian hands it comes back to to the donors uh, so for instance if you're going to clean up power press remove the rubble and we've removed only about two percent of that rubble you need trucks, etc. And that's, those are not going to be produced in Haiti. So th- there, is a, th- there are built-in biases uh, in, in those very policies. I mean, why is it that Bill Clinton can recognize very publicly in front of the Senate that his policy was catastrophic and yet nothing has been done in terms of imposing tariffs, etc.? Uh, th- th- there is a real problem in terms of what is being imposed on not just Haiti, many pe- many countries in the Third World, whatever you want to call it, and the domestic interests of the vast majority. There is a real disconnect. It's not just Haiti. Haiti is probably the prime example of that.
5: Thank you, and Dr. Gillingham, if I could ask you, if um, the if the um, organisation is the, the centre of laboratory studies, testing, etc., are their published sensitivities uh, to certain drugs and protocols that maybe your organization has established for the treatment of certain diseases like their STDs and TB, HIV? So
3: um, in terms of sensitivities for first of medications used for specific diseases. Um, we have that for HIV, for tuberculosis. As I mentioned, um, this has been a reference lab for um, the evaluation of susceptibility of the germ that causes tuberculosis um, to uh, both the first-line drugs and second-line drugs. Also, um, malaria. One of the unusual bright points in the health situation in, in Haiti is that the malaria is still chloroquine sensitive, um, but we have a monitoring program for that. So yes. Um,
5: I'm a family practitioner. Oh, I'm involved great. in a, a clinic down in Fort uh-huh. Prince, Haiti. seems like right in your back neighborhood there. Mm-hmm. And just knowing some of the sensitivities of the co- more common diseases that I'm mm-hmm. like, we really don't have the resources to treat TV. Anymore. HIV, but just yeah. talking about many of the STDs and what is right. appropriate or inappropriate, because I know it's appropriate in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, but yeah. I'm not quite so sure.
3: Well, maybe we could talk after, but I can tell you just briefly that we haven't seen any emergence of resistance um, in terms of STDs that you may be seeing. Um, I'd be a little careful of trimethoprim sulfa. There's a fair bit of resistance to that. Um, uh, in Thank
5: you. Uh,
0: hello. My uh, Community St. Edwards in Richmond is involved with where we've been twinning with uh, a parish in Circa Carvajal, which is on the central plateau north of Inch. And we struggle with how do we be helpful because we probably, by virtue of giving them money, have created a certain kind of dependency, which is necessary. But now we'd like to find a way to to increase their self-sufficiency or to create it, really, because there isn't much. Do you have any suggestions?
2: Well, I think if an NGO is serious about not just managing a crisis but going beyond the necessity of managing the crisis, you have to train the very people on the ground. So you essentially essentially, uh, dig your own grave. You should be out after a certain amount of time and you should train people who can take over. Uh, that's the only way you're going to get any self-sufficiency. And I think this is precisely why some organizations are successful, because they go in, they train people, and they gradually withdraw. And I think this is the transition that is really important. Many NGOs stay on the ground, and as you said, whether willingly or not, they generate more dependence. And, and this is a huge problem. I mean. One of the most amazing statements after the earthquake was made by the Minister of the Interior. He said, we are not in the business of resolving problems Call the international community. This is the Minister of the Interior. So that tells you the mentality at the highest level. You know, when the earthquake occurred, the first thing that the President did was not to go and talk to the nation. He didn't talk for three weeks. He called the French Embassy. And he says that very publicly. So you have that kind of dependence. We can solve the problem, come here. And that is a very destructive pattern.
0: Well, what we, we support a, a Haitian doctor who goes there yeah. three days a week. But the population doesn't have the resources to That's pay it. So that you know, there's no way for that. And we support the school, likewise. Parents don't have the ability, or at least if they did, they wouldn't be able to pay their teachers anything. Uh, we are starting a rabbit project where you know we hope that people will be able to, but it 's not a matter of so much of training because there 's really no jobs yeah there are no jobs of any kind yeah
2: well, well there are potential resources instance, I was talking to Anya with the school business that she 's setting up, uh, her idea is to essentially provide the education etc, mm-hmm. but to have the kids to have the families work on the field and produce food etc so it right. becomes a a communal uh, uh, endeavor. So while you help, they help themselves. And at one point, if that takes hold in the agricultural sector, then they may become completely self-sufficient. Right, so that, but but it's, a, it's a very long period. International
0: policies that require that right. development out in the rural areas.
2: Yeah, so. so
0: yeah. I want to follow up on Kathy. I'm Kathy, and
4: um, I wanted to ask you the wealthiest five. We're talking about the wealthiest five percent controlling the country, and I've actually met one major landowner in the concrete business who owns this beautiful piece of property on the shore. um, Of course, his kids are educated in Miami. But anyway, back to the the wealthiest five percent. Where does the Catholic Church fit into that picture? And um, can you tell us how a um, what a wealthy Haitian's lifestyle
2: might be like? Is <laughs> it Catholic priest? Yeah. Well, no, it's not our Catholic priest. Well, the Catholic Church was deeply divided in the early 80s between what was called Thiel Eglise, which was essentially those priests who had advocated the theology of liberation. Uh, and one of the leaders of that movement was the former president, uh, jean bertrand Aristide. Uh, so, the Catholic Church had that Chile's and then they had a very more, much more conservative traditional side. Uh, With the collapse of uh, the Aristide governments, uh, the church is really back to more or less the kind of old church doing some work, but not getting involved uh, much significantly in politics as it used to. Uh, So, uh, and it's becoming increasingly uh, a church that promote salvation through divine ways instead of uh, secular ways, if you wish. Uh, the wealthy Haitians, well, they live very nice life. I come from a uh, privileged background. Uh, but you see, one of the things that uh, is paradoxical to me <laughs> is the mentality. I mean, it's not as if Haiti is ex- exceptionally... Uh, uh, Unequal. I mean, if you look at the United States, you have massive inequalities that are growing at an accelerated rate. Uh, but, you see, the elite in Haiti, there's no electricity, what do you do? You don't try to fix the electrical system. You have your own generator. You don't have water, you buy private water. You don't have security, you have your own security. Uh, if there is trouble in the street, what do you do? You have an armed uh, car, literally. So there is... Uh, That kind of escape, you know, the streets in many of the neighborhoods, very wealthy neighborhoods, are in terrible shape. You say, why don't you fix it? The government should fix that. I said, well, why don't you pay you taxes? If we pay taxes, the government will not fix it because it's corrupt. So there is a kind of a vicious uh, uh, circle. Uh, On the other hand, elites in Haiti are very much like elites anywhere else. They want to preserve what they have. It's a normal no, yeah, you have very nice houses. You have you have the best education, you have they
4: live a comfortable lifestyle as you live
2: here. Yes, exactly. Okay. So
4: I've never
2: seen anything after, after anything like Oh no, they're uh, they you know, absolutely spectacular houses, beautiful architecture. Uh, but the geography of, of of Haiti has changed in turn. When I was growing up for instance, uh, I could go downtown, I could go to Cité Soleil. And actually, I worked with my cousin. I had pockets of money that I would put in the bank. I would never be touched. There was absolute, you know. That has fundamentally changed. You, you wouldn't dare do that, especially someone with my skin color. Uh, the second thing that has changed, too, is that when you were growing up, there was a, an urban segregation, complete urban segregation. If you're in a nice, a nice neighborhood, you wouldn't see poor people. You were isolated. Now that has changed, the geography has changed, very wealthy neighborhoods are now surrounded by poor areas, by slums. And that has generated more tension because the elite assumes that they are under assault and there is fear. So the reaction is one, let's build walls, etc.
3: Can we
4: have the trivia question at this point? We need to end our um, session.
3: In what year did Thomas Jefferson win his second term as president, and Haiti win its independence? Who can? I, who's the first hand? <laughs> I think I saw your hand first. I'm sorry, in the um, fuchsia shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah.
2: What's your name? So? What is that? UVU. E